Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to have two colleagues with me for our podcast, Dr. Alex Garbin and Dr. Jen Stevens-Lapsley. They're both from the VA Eastern Colorado Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center, the VA Eastern Colorado Healthcare System, as well as the physical therapy program in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehab at the University of Colorado in Aurora, Colorado. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I really enjoyed your paper, and I look forward to discussing it with you. I think it's a really important topic and one that hasn't received much attention in the literature. Let me give listeners a little summary, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Perfect. There's a current and projected shortage of physical therapy researchers that you talk about in the introduction to your paper. And you point out that questions persist about the perceived financial barriers associated with the pursuit of the Doctor of Philosophy or equivalent degree with or without postdoctoral training following the DPT degree. And your study evaluated both the short and the long-term financial impact of PhD with or without postdoctoral training. And you incorporated opportunity costs, years to break even, and long-term earnings. You conclude in your paper that relative to work as a clinical physical therapist, those who pursue four years of PhD training with or without a postdoc do result in short-term deficit in earnings, but those deficits do not persist long-term even when you adjust for present value. So let me begin by asking you, what led you to do this study? Yeah, so the, you know, it's the, it's the decline in PhD candidates and the growing number of PhD programs um, that we're watching, you know, that there's not, the demand isn't going to, the supplies and, and the demand aren't matching up. And for years, I've been talking to candidates about their interest in PhD training, and the biggest barrier is financial. And they yeah, understandably see the pay cut that they're going to take and say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go that route. It's too much work, and, and plus the pay cut is, is just too much for me to, to be able to stomach. And so uh, I thought, you know, having a data-driven model, essentially, you know, and in our example that we put forth really is an example of one path that someone can take or, or different tracks, um, but not the only tracks. But what we put forth at least allows us now to have a conversation around the realities of the financial sacrifice on the front end, but the financial benefits in the long run. And I think this is going to be really important because, you know, we have uh, 264 PT programs in 2021 compared to 230 just in 2013. So, and there are 60 additional programs currently being developed, and we need faculty to fill those spots, and we need faculty that are rigorously trained to conduct research and are willing to do pursue a PhD or the equivalent. You know, in terms of the context, uh, in your article, you talk about a recent survey of PhD program directors from PT programs that are research intensive, and 40% 
are experiencing a decline in PhD applicants. I was not aware of that. How significant is the decline and, and what do you think can be done about that? Yeah, so the significance is, you know, uh, it's popping up all over. And um, again, because of the growth in programs, we're really just trying to trying to bridge that gap. And we need to start bridging now um, in order to address this deficit. But what can be done about it? So um, one of the reasons we, we wrote the manuscript is to provide the data so that people can make decisions about the financial implications. But the other piece that I think is important to emphasize is we're encouraging people to think about when they finish their DPT, transitioning into a PhD track sooner rather than later. We lose a lot of people because they have intentions to possibly go back down the road and life gets filled with all sorts of other responsibilities and becomes much harder to go back. You know, once you have a mortgage and maybe a family and other commitments, it becomes harder to take that pay cut. And so one of the things that I think could help um, mitigate some of the this these circumstances is encouraging people to go more directly from their DPT to PhD or get a year or two of experience instead of five or 10 years. It also allows people to reap the benefits of the investment, right? So if they're gonna see the financial benefits down the road, um, starting earlier will help. But there's been a lot of discussion around whether or not missing that additional clinical experience compromises someone's ability to be successful in an academic setting, especially with, with a clinical research program. And I think more and more the data are suggesting that's just not the case. Um, I went through directly from my PT to my PhD degree and numerous other faculty who have large and successful research operations have partnered like myself with clinicians and been able to then quickly transition into that PhD program, but still maintain those clinical ties to make sure that research that we're doing is, is relevant and that we're asking the right questions. So that's one piece I think that will help. We won't lose as many talented people in the system if people consider that transition earlier. And then we also need PT programs with research academic role models to encourage DPT students to pursue this path. You know, a lot of people question their capabilities as to whether or not they could really, you know, pursue a PhD, be successful, be an academic faculty member. And sometimes they need a little bit of confidence building and they need to see people uh, in academic settings conducting research, conducting rigorous research to serve as role models to then ultimately help them take that next step. And the other thing I'll say is that we need to create more avenues for funding sources during training to help attract high quality students. So, you know, most programs, full-time programs especially offer stipends and they pay for health insurance and they pay for tuition a lot of times, but we need additional scholarships and we need additional financial supports in order to further bridge that gap and, and make the transition into PhD training more attainable. Dr. Garvin, you have a DPT and a PhD, correct? Correct. How long after your DPT did you take before you started pursuing the PhD? So like Jen, I went directly from my DPT training to my PhD. Um, it was a consideration and I had a lot of feedback one way or the other, but for me, partly on the financial consideration side and that I thought realistically, if I did go into clinical practice, am I going to end up staying in clinical practice because it is hard to make that return? And then partly because I felt for my research questions, I would be able to form those collaborations and really form my expertise in my PhD training too and ask good future career questions um, with my experience. Well, there's no question there's a short-term financial deficit mm -hmm. from pursuing a PhD. We don't need studies to, to show us that. We, we know that. 
How important is the financial component relative to other factors? Do we know much about other factors that influence whether or not someone pursues a PhD? So for the financial factors, that aforementioned survey of program directors, about 70% of those program directors stated the low finances during training is a major reason they're having trouble recruiting PhD candidates. In regards to other reasons, I think it's we, of course, know there are some. We can look at other medical careers and some research in their arena that have shown really the, the desire to perform intensive research, the desire to go back to full-time study after already performing seven or six rigorous years of undergraduate and DPT education, and really just different family or job responsibilities are other major reasons highlighted in other medical careers. And I think based off that, we can really assume it's also likely considerations for DPT graduates considering whether PhD training is the right path forward. I have to say personally, I never intended to pursue a PhD. And I only did because I went to graduate school to get a master's and then I started working with mentors and they really encouraged me. And if it wasn't for that, I never considered it as an option. Yeah, and I think that's very common that people just need that extra push and that, that you know, we as mentors identify people who have capacity um, and we can see kind of where they would really contribute to our profession in terms of their skills and talents um, and, and being, you know, really actively encouraging people is going to be an important part of this. You know, the other thing I often hear is people want that clinical context. They don't want to leave the clinic because they don't want to lose that clinical connection um, to patients. And so they don't want to necessarily go back and get a PhD. But I always tell people it's about what research you decide to engage in. You can mm -hmm. be absolutely clinically connected and feel like you're still using your clinical skills on a daily basis if you align your training with a question or a population that is of interest clinically to you. Well, I agree totally. You know, one of the big challenges in the study, such as what you did, is you have to make a lot of assumptions around the kind of information you're going to build into your models. One of the things that you needed, of course, was data on academic physical therapy salaries. And you used data that came from a 2019 CAPTI uh, accreditation survey, but it was incomplete. Do you know why? First of all, was it hard to get data from CAPTI? And do you know why it was uh, you had salary data on 60, just over 60 percent of the core faculty positions? I would have thought they would have data on all faculty positions. Yeah, you know, it's my understanding that the uh, data, the aggregate report um, may not be complete because it depends on the programs providing that information on a regular basis and the amount of information that's asked for every year, they may or may not get all of that back from every single program. So I think because it's not a mandatory, you know, fill the entire, you know, um, survey out, I think that's the largest reason for that missing data. CAPTI, when we explained what we were doing and why we were interested in pursuing this, we're very collaborative and very helpful in terms of sharing that data. So we were very grateful for the opportunity um, to access that information. That's good to hear. You know, rightly, you built in net present value estimates into your model. And so that represents, of course, the opportunity cost of a PhD trained academic physical therapy career compared to a non-PhD alternative. And it accounts for inflation and then the lost uh, potential for savings or investments that you might make early in your career. And, and you calculated net present value as the sum of present values over a hypothetical 30-year career. As someone who's been in the business for over 40 years, I was curious why you picked 30 years. 
Yeah. So one barrier we had going forward is there is really not any data saying this is the average clinical career. Or this is the average academic career. So we opted to use a more conservative 30 year projection. And that's largely due to two factors. One being the large heterogeneity of DPT graduates and really the age at which they graduate. So a DPT graduate at 40 likely won't actually work that 30 year projection where someone that's graduating at 25 we might see a 30 to 40 year career out of them. So wanted to be a little bit more conservative. The other major reason was we're seeing that burnout is quite prevalent in clinical physical therapists and in other medical careers, there's data showing this is typically indicative of early retirement and thus a shorter career. So we thought it was appropriate to kind of err on caution, be a little bit shorter and conservative with 30 years. That being said, this is again, meant to be more of a foundation, a baseline that we can look at this and if you are anticipating to go more of a 40 year career, you can build out that projection yourself with our table of assumption with our figures. So if someone is working more than 30 years, they can see my long term earnings will likely grow even more in favor of that academic physical therapy career. Yeah, that's a good point. It's unfortunate we don't have data. My assumption would be a PT who pursues a clinical career may have a shorter career span than one who pursues an academic career. But that's just based on my anecdotal experience. That's another advantage if you pursue the academic track versus the clinical track. Um, yeah, that's another reason that's a conservative projection because we do see that academics tend to work part-time or transition into retirement, but they tend to, in later years, um, they have a longer length of time, I agree, that they typically are working. And a physical therapist with the stresses and the strains on their body often can't, unless they're in a management position, can't sustain that level of activity at quite as long as, as those, those of us in academia. Yeah. In your analysis, you categorize those who pursue a PhD-oriented career as majority versus non-majority. Could you just define briefly what you mean by those two? And then I have a question about the, the data, the results. Yes, the majority, kind of the title that we used, represents people that are doing 50% or more scholarship. And that's the way CAPD categorizes different amounts of, of academic activity. So 50% or more research, essentially. And so that's what we defined as kind of research intensive. Okay. Now here's my question. So in, in your results, those who pursue a majority academic career, you estimate the financial break-even point is year 21 after the DPT relative to the clinical or non-PhD uh, career. For those with a non-majority academic PhD career, the break-even point is at year 18. And um, when you adjusted differences to present value, of course, it it was more favorable to the non-PhD career. However, both the majority and the minority or the non-majority still broke even relative to the non-PhD career. Bottom line, is it fair to say there's no evidence based on your analysis that long-term you're at a financial disadvantage if you pursue a PhD career? I would say bottom line, that's a accurate and some nicely summarized conclusion that there is no long-term disincentive. I do again want to emphasize that this is one model specific to that individual that is pursuing a PhD immediately after DPT training. So if you are that clinician that's worked for 
10 or 15 years, and thus you might not actually ever hit that break even point, then that night might not be your conclusion. So it's really necessary to look towards that as the reader. Yeah, and you're right to point out that issue. And I would encourage listeners to read the article to fully appreciate the assumptions that are built into your models, because the, the, the devil is in the detail, uh, as you rightly point out. One of the issues I've experienced in my career and working with junior uh, colleagues is whether or not to pursue a postdoc following the PhD career. And I've always encouraged people to pursue a postdoc. And um, I think it's becoming more and more common. But when I looked at your data, I was fascinated to see that those who pursue a postdoc and then go on to a majority academic career, the financial break-even point is year 15. And for those who pursue a non-majority academic career, the break-even point following the postdoc is at year 14. What factors do you think attribute uh, this difference? And clearly, financially, you're at an advantage if you pursue the postdoc. I, I never realized that, so I was glad to see that. But what, what do you think is driving that? Yeah, so I'll clarify one aspect of that question. That's first that the non-majority group is actually only doing PhD training. So we modeled it as that because there is some evidence showing that postdoctoral training is associated with really greater research research productivity. So we kind of married them to that majority scholarship group. With that in mind, the reason for the differing break-even points is during that postdoctoral training, you do have that greater relative loss in compensation due to the fact that they're earning less than that person that goes directly from their PhD to then being in academia. So we have this greater initial loss that makes it so the break-even point is sooner for the non-majority scholarship group. But if you look at the figures and look at the data, you see that the majority scholarship group is slowly catching up to the non-majority scholarship group, and then eventually will pass them so they have that greater long-term earnings by likely doing the postdoc and being involved in majority scholarship. And the other thing to remember is that we have modeled this very conservatively, assuming that when you're in your training phase as a PhD student, you have no outside income. You have no additional scholarship income. You have no PRN clinical work. You only have the stipend associated with the training. And um, that's typically not the case. And that's also true for postdoctoral training. Even if someone's working four hours a week, it's still supplementing their income. So all of this is modeled as a worst case scenario that could be easily improved upon. Yeah, and you make a good point, which I think was, was a wise decision on your part, because it would be very difficult to defend whatever assumptions you would build into such a model because there's so much variability. I was interested on the issue around debt. You, you note in your article that the average DPT student who completes their undergraduate and DPT degree has on average an education debt about $142,000. Do we have any data on the amount of debt, if any, carried by PTs who pursue the PhD with or without the postdoc? Do they add to their debt? We don't have any data to support that, but if individuals are, are participating in full-time PhD training, my experience has been that we don't see that they're increasing the amount of debt 
usually, like I said, they either have some PRN work or something to make to break even because the stipend is usually enough. Like here at the University of Colorado, our stipend is 37000 which is a livable wage. You're not going to live like a king or queen on that stipend, but it's a livable wage. And so we don't think that people go into further debt. The current stipend for a year zero postdoc that uh, NIH recommends is $56,000. So again, you know, very, very reasonable. One of the things that we haven't mentioned is in addition, you know, to, to counterbalance this debt issue, individuals who pursue PhD training are eligible for loan repayment grants. Um, in other words, you can have 100% of your debt paid off, depending on the nature of your debt and specific guidelines, but you can have 100% paid off by the federal government. And individuals who pursue a PhD are more competitive for those types of programs. Um, and, and those who pursue postdoctoral training are even more competitive for those types of programs. So that hasn't been factored in. But if you imagine $140,000 or $142,000 of debt being wiped out you know, overnight, right there, you've, you've made up for a lot, lot of the um, investment in salary reduction um, with PhD training. I was pleased to see that you discussed that in your paper, because as someone who's written a lot of letters for junior colleagues who have tried to get that uh, loan repayment reimbursement, um, it, it is really an important source of support for people. So I was very pleased that you you talked about it. Another question that struck me in looking at your findings, I, I suspect people would be interested in, to know whether or not there are gender differences in these data. Did you by chance look at that? We didn't have access to um, gender data through the CAPTI survey data that we received. So we that would have been a really good thing to look at and be a really interesting thing to look at. CAPTI may have that information. We didn't receive it um, in part of our aggregate that we requested, but it might be something that we could consider exploring down the road. I would also think it would be interesting to look at it by um, ethnic and racial background. Because yep. these are issues of great concern, of course, in, in the field that people are talking about and writing about, and absolutely. that might be something uh, others could pursue as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, very uh, important. Finally, uh, I'm wondering, what are some of the major factors that you weren't able to build into your models, just to, to kind of give listeners a sense of the limitations of what you were able to do? Yeah, so I've touched on that we have that table of assumptions within the manuscript that kind of details all these different assumptions that we have made. And within this, we talk about the assumption, the alternative experience, and essentially how it impacts the final results, those being that short-term opportunity cost, the break-even points, and those long-term earnings. Now, we've discussed a few of them, the length of projection being 30 years shorter or longer, the possibility of additional income during the training period, uh, and an additional one is really the actual salaries we projected. So we have the assumption during PhD training and postdoctoral training of which stipends they're earning. And again, these are approximated based off of NIH levels, as well as anecdotal knowledge based off of our own experiences. But these levels do differ between programs. Some might be higher, some might be lower. So we have that modeled or not modeled, but stated in the assumption table of how that might also impact the results. Well, I have to say, I was delighted to, to see your paper, and it's wonderful to see actual evidence brought into this important topic for our field. So thank you for both of you for doing the work 
And thank you for taking the time to, to talk with me about it today. Yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to spread the word regarding the value of, of PhD or equivalent training. So thank you. Yes, thank you for having us. And I also want to make sure we thank our co-authors, Mike Bade, Carol Tucker, Mark Gritz. And of course, thank you again to Capti for providing us with this data. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.